Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Relentless Dairy on Podbean.com. Welcome to a weird, kind of off-schedule episode of Relentless Daring, live on Podbean.com and the Podbean app. Um, so, normally I do these things on the weekend, but this is one of those that it happens so fast, and I think that if I don't talk about it now, it will somehow managed to get self lost in the news cycle. So uh, I'm going to do a run a quick ad and then I will get right into it. I want to talk to you about keto chow. Keto chow is a small company out of Utah that uses the absolute best ingredients to make the absolute best weight loss products available on the market. Their first goal is flavor. Who wants to drink something as a meal replacer that tastes like crap? Keto Chow understands that this is a hard barrier for a lot of companies to break through, so they have some of the best flavors. Cookies and cream, chocolate, vanilla, real strawberry. These are the best shakes I've ever had. I've been using them for a few months now, and they are amazing. So go to the link in the show notes, check it out. You can search for recipes on how you can use their Keto Chow products to make amazing foods that taste amazing and help with your weight loss goals. KetoChow.xyz, Keto Made Easy. Frightened civilians, the first few hundred feet were the most dangerous. After that, they were out of range of rifle and pistol fire. The hardest part was the waiting. Many people said it was unnerving to be waiting for a ride to safety and to be hearing fighting all around you. There was always the fear that the fighting would end the helicopter. If you can't tell, that was news reporting from Saigon in 1975 when we pulled all of our troops or pulled all of our uh, embassy guys out. People, you know, throwing themselves in the helicopters, trying to get themselves out as fast as possible. And that was just the guys who were, you know, having the CH-47s land in the yard. And that's not the... uh, 
you know, all the civilians climbing up to the Hueys that are up on the roof. And I play that because we watched this in shock and horror in Kabul over the weekend. As what was supposed to be a measured out troop withdrawal turned into an absolute crap show. We had images of, you know, Afghans being hung in the streets, shot in the streets, panicked Afghans flooding the airport at and getting onto the tarmac in Kabul. And as C-17s are taking off, they are grabbing on, trying to get whatever purchase they could onto those C-17 Globemasters. And then as they take off, And images reminiscent of 9-11. They plummeted to their deaths. And this is kind of an emotional episode for me. I did two tours in Afghanistan. My second tour, I mean, it was what it was. I was doing security as we were training Afghan Air Force to... Well, as our, I say we, the U.S. Army and, you know, our, well, U.S. military is a uh, joint effort. But training Afghan Air Force to be PC-17 uh, spy plane pilots. And the, the equipment, the ISR operators inside. Training Afghan pilots to fly the old Russian MI-17 helicopters. And occasionally, you know, we'd see the old the old stinking Hueys flying through. And we had we had our run-ins with the Afghans. Um we had issues with green on blue attacks. We we lost one of our one of our guys who was uh at Camp Moorhead in a different part of Kabul. He was murdered by a Taliban infiltrator who somehow had made it through the rigorous screening project that the Afghan commandos use. And he was shot in the back and killed. 2011, I was one of the last units to do a full one-year deployment to Afghanistan. I remember arriving there in January of 2011, being held up for two weeks, or for one week, extra training at Bagram because, oh, we have these these new uh, weapon stations that we want you to learn how to use so you can teach, our, teach the rest of the guys when you get back. Then hearing tales about how the AO we were going to was the Wild West. One of the guys in my platoon would have been killed by an IED, which was made out of an old Russian mortar shell, had it miraculously not been planted wrong into the dirt. I watched friends get shot at. 
I have PTSD from treating children who they had no say in the war. They had no they had no dog in the fight, so to speak. But they were treated at our post because it was the closest medical treatment they could get to. Because they were in the wrong damn place at the wrong damn time as an insurgent lobbed a grenade inside the local bazaar as some uh, Afghan national police were, were walking by. All those kids wanted to do was, you know, maybe scrounge together a couple pennies and buy an apple or some grapes, something from the fruit stand in the bazaar. Um, a couple get a couple days ago, the on the fifteenth, we, I had friends who celebrated their tenth. You know, we're alive day. Where Afghans tried to kill them, they lobbed a couple grenades over over the wall of a building. Four people were were injured. Two of them pretty bad. They had to have surgery, you know, have shrapnel removed, injuries repaired. But they eventually returned to the fight, you know, once they were mostly healed and they, they could be released from the hospital. Two of the Purple Heart recipients in that attack, um, Doc Ackley, I'm still friends with him on Facebook, he wasn't even in our unit. He was part of a provincial reconstruction team. And he volunteered to go on patrol because, hey, I want to get out and I want to see the AO. I want to see where we're working. He was wounded by shrapnel. The platoon, la- the platoon leader, Chris Scrubs, also wounded by the shrapnel. The two of them did not give a damn about their own injuries. They were minor. Jake Schulteis, who we lovingly called Shipbird, nearly had his Achilles tendon severed, and he was in pain and agony. He was, he was the radio telephone operator for, for Lieutenant Scrubs. Chase Brown also took a good deal of shrapnel. Um, Doc Ackley, he shared the picture that um, was taken by an AFP photographer who was on patrol with them that day. He shared that picture, and you see the two of them leaning over Chase, applying, applying aid to him. Like I said, not worrying about their own wounds. And Lieutenant Scrups, wherever you are, no, he's not dead. I don't think that. I just don't know where he is these days. He he's on Facebook using a uh, using an alias. After that deployment, I started working in the training room and. 
he had issues with his Purple Heart packet. And I swear to God, if I had to look at his at pictures of his bleeding hairy ass one more time, I was going to gouge his eyes out. Update, yes, due to my efforts and having to look at pictures of his bleeding butt, he eventually got his Purple Heart. So, I did something right. But we, there was so much that, that we gained over there. There was a village that, you know, they hated us. There are villages over there that loved us. You know, we had, we had the places where the kids would, you know, yell at us. They, they wouldn't ask us for pens or Pepsis. They would yell at us and boo us. The adults just ignored us. We had villages where if we were pulling security and it was first thing in the morning because we set up our positions at night. Yep. The, the old man of the house, he would see where all of our positions were and he would come outside with a couple pitchers and a tray full of glasses and he would bring hot milk chai, sadu chai to all the positions and give them to, and give them to the soldiers. I mean, that was amazing to be in this place where you're told, yeah, people are going to hate you. And to be held with that esteem from the local elder. Going on missions into the mountains where they literally had not seen an American troop in four years. But they'd seen lots of Taliban in that same time. They they got UN funds and they built a school that the Taliban promptly destroyed. Smashed out all the windows, took everything of value out of it. So the local shepherds had to use, if they were going through there, they needed a place to put their goats up for the night, they used the school. See, I've seen schools with bullet holes in the walls just because they were there. But I think the biggest thing about the way all of this fell apart is what about all those interpreters who are left behind? What about those Afghan soldiers who, you know, maybe they actually found some some ideology because Afghanistan, big, big good. As I heard so many times before on patrols from our, from our A&A partners, I remember when we got over there on that first tour, the A&A were garbage, straight Garbage. They were smoking hash on patrol. We were trying to be in a concealed overwatch position. And they're blasting music. Just playing as loud as they can from their cell phones because they don't care. But 
it was but as time went on the those Afghans their battalion commander he wanted to forge a partnership with the US with the American troops on the ground so he worked daily Find out who the good soldiers are. Find out who the bad soldiers are. Put the good soldiers in charge. Get rid of the bad ones. We had one soldier when we got there. We thought he was awesome. A big, burly Afghan. Which, I know, it, it. if you've been to Afghanistan, that's kind of an oxymoron. Big and burly and Afghan do not go together. But the dude was about six foot two. And he was yoked. I mean, just a stack of muscles. And he carried a saw, a squad automatic weapon. And he always had two belts of ammo strapped around his chest. We called him Rambo. Rambo saved my damn life. We were trying to maneuver on the enemy. And Rambo's up on top of this hill, and he sees where we're running. And he starts jumping up and down, up and down. The people who are up on that hilltop, they comes off, comes over the radio, hey, stop where you're at, there's a bomb. Like I said, Rambo saved my damn life. And it was a big bomb, too. When EOD came and blew it, it left a six-foot crater in the road. A road that was hard pack and had been for months. That bomb had been planted while it was still raining. And the road was just nothing but pure mud. But later on, Rambo was seen pilfering canned goods and drinks out of of our uh, cook's uh, storage connex. And we reported it. We told Sergeant of the Guard, hey, we just saw him coming out of here in the middle of the night. Our commander let the uh, Afghan commander know. The next day, all the Afghans had a giant formation on our uh, helicopter landing zone. And they called Rambo up, and he came up walking like he had won some big prize. He's going to get some award. Their battalion commander said a few words and walked off. And then that's when all the lower commanders jumped Rambo and they beat his ass. Because he betrayed the trust that they were trying to build with us. That we were trying to build with them. The last time anyone in the unit saw him, he was in the aid station waiting to be uh, medevaced out for multiple broken ribs and a broken jaw. We had commanders over there who loved us, who wanted us to train them to make them better, and we did. We had one Afghan soldier. I I swear to God, he did not speak a lick of English when we got there. By the time by the time we left 
if we're if we were going on a patrol and we had his platoon with us, we would always send the interpreter with our LT. And we would ask for Tajiman, Pashtu, for interpreter. We'd always ask for Tajiman to be with our element in case we had to deal with the locals and we couldn't be around the LT. Those guys loved us at, at Eid when Ramadan ended. They invited us into their homes, and they broke bread with us. They ate with us. We would stay at one of their encampments, and they would cook for us. And this is how we repay them. Instead of Donald Trump's plan, which, okay, the idea of him being having us out of Afghanistan early May 2021, at the time, it seemed ridiculous. Because, oh my gosh, he's cutting deals with the Taliban. Well, the thing is, if Donald Trump had been reelected, I think we would have still been home, or at least he would push the uh, he would pushed it further, but he would have been making sure that the uh, that the other end of the bargain was being held up. I do not foresee one one ounce of him just backing down if the Taliban reneged on what they were trying to uh, what they were agreeing to do. Unfortunately, General Mark Milley, the you know the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he, along with Donald Trump's Department of Defense, and forget the the political appointees, but the career, those civilians who got their jobs because they had a degree and they. You know, they applied through usajobs.gov. The bureaucrats slow-walked everything Donald Trump wanted to do. We saw it with the Secretary of Defense. We saw it with James Mattis, a warrior, a freaking Marine. But hey, he was the expert class. And as we've learned, we have to listen to the experts. The experts know what they're talking about. All these things that Donald Trump wanted to do to facilitate the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan for good. They slow walked everything. Then Joe Biden comes in and he undoes about a billion things that Donald Trump had to do through executive order because even when the Republicans had the House and the Senate, <laughs> he still couldn't get anything through the House and the Senate because too many Republicans were, oh, well, he's an outsider. We, we shouldn't listen to him. All of this was just it's garbage. But the one thing of Donald Trump's that Joe Biden stuck to was Donald Trump's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Something that he somehow managed to screw the pooch on. And then, after he goes and he screws the pooch on it, 
He spends he spent half of his speech blaming everybody but himself after he said the buck stops here. When the world was outraged that Harry Truman had authorized not just one, but two atomic weapons on Japan. What? When Harry Truman said, no, the buck stops here, he took every ounce of responsibility for issuing those orders. But instead, we have Joe Biden. National security team and I have been closely monitoring the situation on the ground in Afghanistan and moving quickly to execute the plans we had put in place to respond to every constituency, including and contingency, including the rapid collapse we're seeing now. I'll speak more in a moment about the specific steps we're taking, but I want to remind everyone how we got here and what America's interests are in Afghanistan. Now, this is one of those things, it it pisses me off to no end, because now he, he has to condescend. Joe Biden, who once argued that we shouldn't kill Osama bin Laden. And and later went on to say, this is the hardest leadership decision in 500 years. Act, and he's acting all magnanimous, like, well, you know, just doing the best we can here, but I'll... Defer to President Puddin-Brain. We went to Afghanistan almost 20 years ago with clear goals. Get those who attacked us on September 11, 2001, and make sure al-Qaeda could not use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack us again. We did that. We severely degraded al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. We never gave up the hunt for Osama bin Laden, and we got him. That was a decade ago. Our mission in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation-building. It was never... Now, I'm going to point out. President Biden just said, our mission was never supposed to be nation-building. So why did, almost immediately after we were able to get the Taliban ousted from power, did we go and start trying to institute a new government, a new system of governance that these people never had, they've never wanted? We started nation-building from the start, not under Barack Obama, not under Donald Trump, not under Joe Biden, under George W. freaking Bush. One of the great neocons of our time. With his great neocon of a vice president, Karl Rove. I said vice president. One of his great, that was one of his great neocon advisors. Great neocon vice president, Dick Cheney. I apologize. I'm a little fired up and I'm shooting from the hip here. I don't have notes. So please forgive me.
We never had a clear 100% goal of what is victory when we went into Afghanistan or for or into Iraq for that matter in 2003. Another great venture that I was privy to that I was privy to thanks to you know the actions of a bunch of crazed ass Saudis on September 11th. But nation building was the goal. Progressivism loves nation building. And progressivism is not just a disease of the left. Progressivism is a disease of all politics. Sure, how it's colored is different. On the left, progressives want to progress towards more and more state control and and eventually authoritarianism, and you don't have rights to property. On the right, you have progressivism where they believe in more and more state control where you're, where you still have your personal property But it's a more and more centralized, more nationalized power that eventually ends in authoritarian, uh, still ends up with authoritarian leadership. But hey, you own your own car, you own your own house, you own your own land. You know, till the government says otherwise, then you, you know, may, maybe you end up needing like this uh, a blue eagle stamp to put up in your business to show that you've met the approval of the government. Oh shoot, that was a that was FDR, crap. But it's just been an absolute mess. Yet for some reason, they they love the idea of, oh well, we're just we're we're. You know, this is a great mission, but we need to build these people up to be more like us. The problem is they don't want to be like us. These are people who are tribalistic. When I said during my tour over there, we had villages that liked us and villages that hated us, 90% of our area of operation, uh, the people identified as Sabaris, identified as Yakabis, which are like South Sabaris. But then there's this one village. They're kind of tucked away up against some mountains. They were the Chinas. These people were the red-headed stepchildren of the area. They, they could barely even go to the market without fear of being attacked just because they weren't the proper tribe. They didn't have the right familial relations. Those people loved us. 
They would take care of us whenever we came to their village for whatever reason. If we had questions, they had answers. And then there were the the occasional Bedouins that would travel through. They were uh well, they they were just left alone. They're those wander they're the wandering shepherds that no one ever had a problem with. No one ever bothered them. And pretty sure if anyone messed with them, they would probably be dead before before dawn. Just because, you know, they're just traveling through. They they mean us no harm or anything. They all if anything gets tore up, they always pay us for it. But anyways. Back to President Putin. We're supposed to be creating a unified, centralized democracy. Our only vital national interest in Afghanistan remains today what it has always been, preventing a terrorist attack on America's homeland. I've argued for many years that our mission should be narrowly focused on counterterrorism, not counterinsurgency or nation-building. That's why I opposed the surge when it was proposed in 2009 when I was vice president. And that's why, as president, I'm adamant we focus on the threats we face today in 2021, not yesterday's threats. Yes, counterinsurgency, coin, as we called it in the military. He, he argued against it. Well, apparently he didn't do a very damn good job because counterinsurgency was, that was, that was the name of the game for years, even before Barack Obama, even before the surge. The name of the game has had all, as soon as we realized that, okay, now we're fighting against an embedded enemy who just moves in and out of the populace at will that is importing IEDs to use against our soldiers. It became a counterinsurgency. It evolved that way on its freaking own. But he's going to sit sit there and say, oh, I was so magnanimous, I said that we shouldn't be doing this. Uh... Come on, Joe. I don't have time to play through all this. I didn't have time to go through and find all the highlights. Well, in this case, the lowlights of the buck stops here of we of, you know, yeah, five or six weeks ago, I said these, this is one of the best trained forces with all the best weaponry. They got Air Force 300,000 strong versus what, 70,000 Taliban? Well, now it's, well, they weren't ready. They they weren't ready? What do you mean they weren't ready? You have Afghan Air Force helicopter pilots who go, yeah, you know what? If I keep fighting them because I'm a pilot, I'm a target of assassination. 
So what they do? <laughs> they turned heel and they started flying Taliban around in the Afghan military aircraft. Blackhawks, MI-17 helicopters that we went through great pains to, you know, put armor in the floorboards, mind you. That's who we are fighting with right now. Of course, we're not going to be fighting with them for much longer. We still have troops in theater that we just authorized sending an extra thousand you know, to help facilitate and secure getting all the rest of our civilians out. Meanwhile, the idea that, you know, Kabul won't fall because these troops that are, you know, so well-trained and well-supplied, they're turning heel. We have troops over there, the Afghan soldiers, who, I'm not a warrior, I'm a shepherd. And if the president has fled the country, I'm out. I'm going back to Nuristan because I can make more money with opium in Nuristan than I can here fighting against you know, my fellow villagers who, who now hate me. It's, it's a crap show, pure and simple. Everything about it has fallen apart. And now the real question remains, what do we do with our partners who are left behind? What do we do with them? Those people who we made promises to. I'm talking interpreters, guides, just the village elders who were friendly to U.S. forces because, hey, U.S. forces and other NATO forces are getting money to repair my well, to fix the road into my village so it's not quite so dangerous to drive a car in, in through these mountain passes. What do we do with them? We just leave them to hang out and dry? I mean, do we leave them to be strung up in the streets? The left loves to complain about lynching, which was absolutely horrible in the United States. I'm not going to downplay downplay that one bit. But they act like the lynching here was a giant travesty. Wait till you see all the bodies hanging from the light poles. Hanging from the trees. Christians in that very, very loving and tolerant community getting nailed to their own damn crosses because Sharia says, hey, they're an infidel. Let them die like their Messiah. 
It's an absolute mess. And I think the one person who nailed it, as far as what do we do now with all these people we're being forced to leave behind, is uh, Matt Zeller. During the war in Afghanistan, former combat advisor with Afghan security forces, co-founder of No One Left Behind, a veterans organization that offers services to former Afghan and Iraqi interpreters who resettle here in the United States. Mr. Zeller, it's uh, almost ironic now to state the name of the organization you founded, um, given what we're watching go on, though I'm curious to hear your reaction of this consequential speech by the American president, didn't run from it. He owned it. He owned his decision. He owned the fact that, as he put it, the buck stops with him. I hope he gets to own their deaths, too. I, I don't I feel like I watched a different speech than the rest of you guys. I was appalled. There was such a profound, bold faced lie in that speech. The idea that we plan for every contingency. I have been personally trying to tell this administration since it took office. I've been trying to tell our government for years that this was coming. We sent them plan after plan on how to evacuate these people. Nobody listened to us. They didn't plan for the evacuation of our Afghan wartime allies. They're trying to conduct it now at the 11th hour. The thing that they were most concerned about was the optics of a chaotic evacuation. Well, they got exactly what they were most concerned of by failing to do what was right when we could have done it. We had all the people and equipment in place to be able to save these people months ago, and we did nothing. I'm appalled that he thinks that we only need to take 2,000 people. There's 86,000 people who are currently left behind in Afghanistan alone. We've identified all of them for the government. I have no idea why they, 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 he claims that people don't want to leave Afghanistan. I have a list of 14,000 names right now of people who want to get out of Afghanistan. And the idea that the Afghan military should be blamed for this, do you know how many casualties the Afghan military took in an average year? More than the United States did in 20. When you're not getting paid on a regular basis, when you're not getting fuel, when no one is supplying you with ammunition, and yet you're still showing up to the fight, how dare us for having to blame these people for not having the audacity to be able to survive a Taliban onslaught? No, no, no. What we need to be doing right now, and what I am appalled that the president didn't say, was we need to be talking about how we're going to get every single one of these people out. Because let's be abundantly clear. People like me looked these people in the eye and made them a promise. We promised them that in their time of need, we would take care of them. How do you ever expect anyone to ever trust us again if we don't do that now while we can? And I'm sick and tired of trying to defer to the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan on what we're going to do. We're the United States of America. They're terrified of us. I have... Afghans on the ground right now who are telling me they're going door to door in Kabul and they're making lists of people who used to work with us. They're telling them with smiles on their face, evil smiles, that they're going to be back from them once we leave. So we either take them now or these people are going to die. I've been trying to tell anyone who will listen. This is a never again moment in the making. This is an administration that seems to be a profound champion of human champion and defender of human rights. Well, sometimes human rights have to be defended at the barrel end of a gun. Absolutely profound from Matt Zeller. Um, and, and he's right. These are people who would absolutely, it, when I was over there, they were willing to take bullets for us. 
they're but now here we are we're just leaving them leaving them behind to suffer and to die and then the rest of the world is watching as we turn our backs and just walk away China is already emboldened while the world was distracted with COVID. They shut down any and all dissent and brought Hong Kong to heel. They've already they've already issued through uh, through their state media. Threats to Taiwan that they shouldn't expect the U.S. to protect them if it comes to wars in the Straits. Every other country is going, holy crap, they just completely abandoned us. We still have we still have other NATO forces. In Afghanistan, there is a NATO base at the airfield. It's quite lovely. I've been there. What happens with them? Remember, under NATO, an attack on one is attack on all. So what happens when our NATO partners... At Kaya. What happens to them when they start getting shelled? When recoilless rifle rounds just start drilling those barracks? What happens to those people who work in the bazaar? I mean, they're, they have no military asset they are no of no military value to us. All they do is they sell us cheaply made counterfeit, you know, 511 tactical hats. They sell counterfeit DVDs, you know, hookahs and rugs and all sorts of interesting knickknacks. What happens to them? I guarantee you, they are in the exact same boat as every interpreter, every local leader who was friendly to to Western forces. They will be held to account by the new religious dictatorship that's going to be taking over a religious dictatorship that by the way let, let, let's take a look at some of these people I don't have names readily available but one of them he was released a few years ago in a prisoner exchange he was one of five who was being held in Gitmo Because he was one of the worst of the worst that we took off the battlefield in Afghanistan. One of the guys 
who is there in the presidential palace since the president of Afghanistan went AWOL because, let's face it, he's a cowardly bitch. One of those guys we traded for Bo freaking Bergdahl. We traded five terrorists for a goddamn traitor. And one of them is currently helping seize power in Kabul right now. Good job, Barack Obama. Excellent move, Mr. Freaking President. I hope you choke on your arrogance over that deal. Oh, well, we, we, we just wanted to get our people back. We, we didn't want to leave an American in the hands of the enemy. Okay, Mr. President, if he was... If he was in such dire straits being held by the Taliban, why did he leave his weapon and body armor behind at his base when he walked off? Riddle me that, Batman. Why did the Taliban in that in that part of Paktika province, suddenly get even better at killing American troops. It's almost like all of a sudden they figured out our our movements and our tactics. Huh, that, 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 that's odd. How many Americans were severely wounded or killed because of Bo freaking Bergdahl? I say, if we're going to just leave people to their own own wishes, leave, leave these people out hanging hanging out to dry. I say we give. There's two guys. I say we give back to the Taliban. Give them back Bo freaking Bergdahl, and give them back that one freaking kid we captured at the start of the war, John Walker Lind. John Walker Lind is responsible for American lives being lost in Afghanistan when he helped with a prison insurrection in Mazar Sharif. If the Taliban are going to be taking back over, give those two terrorist American killing sons of bitches right back to them. I still remember John, not John Walker. I still remember Bo Bergdahl. Bo Bergdahl had converted to Islam well before that deployment. And I still remember watching him as he's reunited with his family in a Rose Garden event. And his dad, who had also converted to Islam, Made sure to say, praise Allah. Allahu Akbar, my son is home. But in 2009, Brock freaking Obama couldn't be bothered to call Nadal Hassan shooting up the, uh, the soldier processing center at Fort Hood 
He couldn't call that terrorism. Oh, that was just workplace violence. Let's not get it twisted. Forget the fact the man had been... The man had had been radicalized through the teachings of that one American imam that Barack Obama would later summarily execute via drone strike in Yemen. Not even on an American battlefield. In Yemen. An American citizen. And his 16-year-old son. Let's not forget that him too. We did all this stuff in the name of fighting terrorism. But when it happened here, it happened on one of our military bases because it was a guy in a green suit, just like the people who he killed, like the people he left wounded. Oh, that's workplace violence. We don't, even, even though he's witnesses have him standing up in a chair shouting Allahu Akbar as he's gunning people down and taking measured shots. Uh-huh. I hate to say this, but I'm sure that in 1975, as my dad watched uh, those helicopters on the evening news taking off from the roof of the embassy in Saigon, in a country where my dad fought and bled, where my dad watched his friends get wounded and get killed where he watched South Vietnamese who were actually trying to fight against the evil communist scum being pushed down from China. When he watched that fall, those feelings of it was all for naught. And then I see similar images, strikingly similar images of Chinooks and Ospreys taking off from the embassy in Kabul. I see those C-17s with so many people packed onto them, they can't even use, they can't even use the seats. They have to just sit them in the floor. Afghan refugees, American diplomats alike just packed in there. I can't help but think that it was all for naught. All right, I just want to say thank you for those of you who joined me live on that random middle of the week, early evening live show. Um, I'm sorry I had to push it back an hour for those of you who were expecting it to be at 5, 6 central. Had a kid with a blown out tire. I had to go deal with it. Sorry. Um, Again, thank you so much for listening. Um, I just want, again, seeing all the Afghan stuff, this has been one of those like, kind of emotional things for me watching, and I just, I had to get it off my chest. Uh you're listening to this on the Apple or on whatever your preferred, you know, podcast listening app of choice is, 
you know, please be sure to share it. If you're listening on Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts, same four things every every week. Number one, subscribe. Thank you. Thank you for getting those numbers up. Appreciate it. Uh, then leave a rating, preferably five stars. I'll accept four. Three will work, but I prefer five. Then write a review. Just doesn't have to be, you know, don't have to write this giant gushing novel about me, although it would be great for my ego. Um, yeah, just let people know you like the show. Say what you like about it. It's awesome. Thanks. Great. And then finally, again, like I said, share the show. Share this episode. Please, please, please tag people like, I don't know, Joe freaking Biden, Barack Obama. Tag them on Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Please help me annoy the crap out of them. Um, that's just how we get the show out there. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can go to RelentlessDaring.com and you can hit that shop button up there in the uh, top left corner. And it will take you to the merch shop and you can you know buy hats and t-shirts, coffee cups, all that crazy stuff. Or if you want to support it directly without having to go through the middleman of, of merch and all that stuff, you can... Donate directly. There is a donate button at the top of the page. Click that. They'll take you to PayPal. You can set up a one-time or a recurring donation. Again, all that money that comes in from you supporting me through through merch, through direct donations, through checking out those uh, those uh, advertising partners in the show notes, all that stuff. All that money goes into making the show better for you. Again, thank you so much for tuning in to this random live in the middle of the week episode of Relentless Daring. And as always, stay relentless. This is Relentless Daring on Podbean.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.